Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Good Monday morning to you. Mike McNamara in for Monday edition of All Marine Radio. Uh, we've been covering the events in uh, Afghanistan for I don't know how many days now, uh, more than a week, and uh, as the nation and the world have been watching it. And so uh, joining me to do that this morning from McAllen, Texas, Tim Lynch. Tim, uh, good morning. How you doing? I'm doing fine, Mac. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. And uh, from the greater Kansas City area, Will Costantini. Will, how are you? Great, Mac. Thanks. You good bet. morning. Morning, and from uh, from Northern Las Vegas, uh, Jeff Kenny joins me. Jeff, how are you? Good, thanks. You bet. You bet. All right. Um, let me let me go over some general situation shit. Timmy will do the intel piece, and then we'll do ops, and then talk about other stuff as well. So, uh, latest news out of Afghanistan, uh, and I, I I've kind of taken to go into Al Jazeera first. Um, the, their lead headline um, is. Uh, an a infographic on Iran's upcoming uh, Iran, Afghanistan's upcoming humanitarian crisis. So uh, pretty interesting. Uh, we we spoke about that some yesterday about the number of refugees uh, trying to get out of the country, the financial issues, as well as the you know just the the, the business issues in terms of food and and things like that. So anyway, that and that the top story. Uh, behind that, rockets fired towards the Kabul International Airport as evacuations wind down. Uh, another story is, is children among civilians killed in U.S. drone attack in Kabul. And then the, in France, the United Kingdom proposed a Kabul safe zone that would be supervised by the United Nations. Uh, a story that I'd also like to you know, pay a little bit of attention to that we alluded to yesterday, I think, is that the Taliban takeover... Uh, and this is another Al Jazeera story, is a body blow to Indian interest in the region, right? Analysts say that the Taliban's return to power is a major setback for India, which cultivated close relationships with the outgoing government. Another story that I want to get to that is an Al Jazeera story is a, the headline is, Veteran Afghan strongman, strong men form a new front for negotiating with Taliban. A band of veteran Afghan leaders, including two regional strongmen, are angling for talks with the Taliban and plan to meet within weeks to form a new front for holding negotiations on the country's next government, a member of the group said. Khalid Noor, son of Ada Mohammed Noor, the once powerful governor of the northern Afghanistan's, is it Balak province, said the group comp comprised of veteran ethnic oh. Uzbek leaders, Abdul Rashid Dostum, and Dost- Dostum, you'll recognize that name, and others opposed to the Taliban takeover. So, you know, in, in very short order, the Taliban said that, you know, we're seeking to be more inclusive and whatnot. They're they're going to get their chance, and, you know, and then I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, from uh, the Afghan uh, news website, Tolo, uh, top headline, Afghan journalist, in an open letter to the world, please protect us. Uh, next story is Afghans with evacuation documents are still in Kabul. Uh, next story is defense system intercepts five rockets fired 
at the Kabul airport. And uh, there's a, a picture with this story of a, uh, uh, the picture is, is with one of those Soviet um, trucks with five tubes mounted in the back of it. Or so, Katusha. Yep, yep. So it's a smaller version. It's the mobile variant of the Katusha rockets. Um, next headline, U.S. airstrikes hit suicide bombers targeting Kabul airport. Uh, next headline, Taliban, male and female students to study in separate classrooms. Uh, next headline, Taliban criticize U.S. airstrikes in Afghanistan. Uh, next headline, interesting because it's a bit of an opinion piece, lack of inclusive government will lead to a crisis. That's a, a, a piece by a number of analysts. Um, and then the top stories for the day by virtue of how many people are clicking on them look to be as follows. Um, Afghans with evacuation documents are still at Kabul. Uh, U.S. airstrike hits suicide bomber. And uh, so that's that. Um, American news sources, um, Afghanistan updates, rockets launched at Kabul airport after U.S. strikes intercepted by U.S. Iron Dome system. Um, U.S. shoots down rockets aimed at Kabul International Airport. U.S. diplomats are unlikely to stay in Afghanistan after troops leave. Uh, Biden witnesses the return of service members killed in the Kabul airport bombing. American University of Afghanistan students and relatives trying to flee were sent home. An Afghan family struggles to reunite after being separated by the Kabul airport attack. Um, Let's see, from the Wall Street Journal, Afghan militants fired rockets at the airport evacuation. Kabul is winding down. The Afghan capital is on high alert for further uh, attacks. Americans are broadly supportive of withdrawing from Afghanistan, but are divided on how much to hold President Biden responsibility for the messy exit. We talked about the Taliban moving to, to stop the cultivation of poppy yesterday. And so um, some other stories and, and some other data. Um, evacuees, the numbers now are pro- approximately 116,700, according to ABC News. In the last 24 hours, 26 military flights took off, 1,200 evacuees out of Kabul, 2,900 in the previous 24 hours for a total of 16,700. Uh, from Reuters, the core diplomatic staff of the U.S. Embassy have left Kabul. The final pullout is underway, according to American officials. That was as of about uh, an hour ago. And from Reuters, about an hour and a half ago, a far greater humanitarian crisis looms for Afghanistan. Uh, And then from CENTCOM, uh, the evacuation enters into its final uh, hours. Uh, And then I saw a couple interesting things as I kind of perused Twitter a little bit looking for news. Uh, and here's one of them. Um, and this is a reply to Richard Engel. And I'll play a report from Richard Engel here in a minute. Um, so this is addressed specifically to Richard Engel. Are you aware that there are 40 million Afghans? And the so-called Taliban actually call themselves Mujahideen? How can 75,000 Taliban terrorists terrorize 40 million people while 300,000 so-called Afghan soldiers utterly failed to terrorize the terrorists back. What's wrong or not true here? 
So I thought that was a little bit interesting. Um, yep. uh, let's see. Uh, there's also been stories about 300 Americans in Kabul that aren't being that have not been evacuated. Uh, Al Jazeera reports the U.S. has the capacity to evacuate the 300 U.S. citizens remaining in Afghanistan who want to leave before the Tuesday deadline, says President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Um, um, and, and this is interesting relative to our conversation about operations. Um, this is just a tweet by a Afghan correspondent by the name of Lee Doucette. Much more traffic in the sky, U.S. warplanes circling overhead to provide cover for departing military transporters. So we talked uh, we talked about that yesterday in terms of what the final 24 hours would look like. Uh, and then one more tweet from a guy named Bilal Sarwari, right? Hundreds of Afghans outside the new Kabul bank. Cash crisis is causing panic among Afghans. And we talked about that a little bit. So let me play this uh, this report from Richard Richard Engel, which has some pretty interesting stuff, and then I'll turn it over to Timmy. So this is Richard Engel from a little bit ago on NBC News. Pictures at 3.53 in the afternoon at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan on the eve of America's evacuation and withdrawal after nearly 20 years of war there. The United States military is working to evacuate hundreds of Americans still looking to leave the country before tomorrow's deadline set by President Biden. According to the latest numbers provided by the State Department, approximately 250 U.S. citizens are still in Afghanistan. Since August 14th, the United States says it has evacuated more than 122,000 people, including more than 1,200 since yesterday morning. As for the thousands of Afghans who worked with the U.S. military who have not yet been evacuated, the New York Times reports their window to be airlifted has closed. The Times says a text message was sent out late Saturday, which read in part, quote, We regret to inform you that international military evacuations from Kabul airport have ended. Joining us now, NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel from Doha, Qatar. Richard, good morning. What is your sense on the eve of this withdrawal of how many people, how many Americans, how many Afghans who want to get out remain at the airport trying to leave the country? Well, this has been a violent race to the exit, and uh, it is getting more and more dangerous, more and more chaotic in this last phase. Uh, we are less than 24 hours to go. And this morning there was a rocket attack on the airbase being blamed on ISIS. The U.S. is coordinating with the Taliban. The U.S. and the Taliban in coordination are trying to prevent ISIS from disrupting this process. The U.S. has now conducted two strikes against ISIS, including one in Kabul. And the Taliban are saying that the Kabul missed its target and hit and killed a family. So. As these evacuations, as evacuees are, are trying, hoping to get on one of these last flights, the Americans are saying, sorry, it's over, the window is closed, and they're conducting this mini drone and car bomb and rocket war with ISIS right in the 11th hour. So you have a, a tremendously complicated situation where the U.S. trying to pull out, trying to pull out safely, trying to guard the perimeter, and then these last Americans, like the ones who got those text messages, saying, you're just going to have to wait it out. We're, we're done. The gates are closed. Mm -hmm. uh, those 
inevitably going to be left behind or who feel that they, they had a good reason to leave, that they didn't get a chance to make their case, they didn't have the appropriate paperwork, are now going to face uh, a, 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 potentially a long wait. They're going to have to wait until they get their documents, until the civilian airport opens, or they could potentially make it for the make their way to one of the land borders uh, up toward Central Asia, Iran, or Pakistan. And it's not clear when the airport is going to open. There were some talks that uh, the airport was going to open in coordination with the Qataris and with the Turks. Uh, it could take uh, it could take weeks for that to happen. Uh, could could be less. But there's there's been a significant amount of their, uh, damage at the airport itself. And uh, the, the, the pilots are, are simply not going to fly if they don't have the right reassurances. So we're racing toward the exit. It's a violent race to the exit. People are going to be, people are going to be left behind, and they're going to be very, uh, very stressed, to, the, to, to put it lightly. But the Taliban is saying that it's not hunting anyone down, that it's not going to bother people, that it will allow people to leave. Um, and then the question is, can they, be, can they be trusted? Can they be taken at their word? Well, yeah, that's the big question, Richard. You've covered this war for 20 years. You've covered the Taliban very closely. You've been in among them. They've said the right things, like a PR effort for the last couple of weeks. But the sense from people I talk to is they're saying the right things until that last American plane lifts off and then it's back to their usual medieval business. So what is your sense of what Afghanistan will look like on Wednesday? Well, the Taliban are being nudged by, by many different actors, Qatar among them, uh, but not only. And they are being nudged in the right direction. They are saying to the, uh, to, to the Taliban, you can't go right back to the way you were. The people won't accept it. You're going to face an insurgency. You're going to be ostracized by the international community. You will be hated. You don't want to do this. And there are many in the senior Taliban leadership uh, who, who agree with this, who want to try and have a fresh start, want to have Taliban light, if you will, uh, where they still control the basic tenets of society based on a, a strict form of Sharia, but not anything like the, the, the rule that they had in, in the 90s. So it, it, a lot of it will also depend on how the world reacts to the Taliban. If the world tries to encourage them along, tries to bring them, uh, bring them out, maybe it could help. If the U.S. suddenly slaps sanctions on them, they could have a negative reaction, retrench and retract. And um, so it, it, the, the, the Taliban are trying to explore this, this new territory. They are saying the right things. And they're saying the right things for a reason, because people around them are telling them to say the right things. Some of them believe this. They do want to try differently. They do want to not antagonize uh, the, uh, an entire new generation of Afghans. But I think a lot of this will depend on how the world reacts. Are they going to be embraced? Will they suddenly get hit by sanctions? Will they? Will there be? Uh, will, will will events on the ground overtake them? Will there be more airstrikes uh, against them? Uh, so I think talking to them that there are enough in the senior leadership that they do want to give it a try. But the question is, what is their version of, of, of giving it a try, and how receptive is the world going to be uh, to, to a new and, and claimingly uh, rebranded Taliban? John. All right, that's Richard Engel. So, Timmy, I'll turn it over to you for the intel uh, portion. 
Yeah, once again, a, a really appropriate segue because on top of the list of what came, what uh, I found yesterday was a article from Kareem Bakari, who's an intellectual writing in the Wall Street Journal editorial page where he contends that there's great friction between Mullah Baradar and the, and the Taliban who want to be pragmatic and Mullah Hattabutula, who is the Emir al-Monami, the leader of the faithful, who stresses that they need ideological purity, excuse me, in order to hold the franchise together. What Mr. Bakari is saying is the Taliban will not be able to remain unified if they continue to push this pragmatic angle in the face of of the mullah's resistance to have uh, an ideologically pure regime, which is exactly what ISIS wants, which is exactly what al-Qaeda wants. So, so it's very interesting as we talk about this humanitarian crisis breaking out. We also talk about the limited number of Taliban. They've got cohesion problems already, enough that it's detected within the intellectuals who know what to look for, which is a little bit deeper. And so I found that very interesting. Also yesterday, the Taliban and the Panshirs were scrimmaging outside of their valley. Uh, the spokesman for the Northern, Northern excuse me, the National Resistance Front, which is what the Northern Alliance now calls itself, says that the problem is the Taliban are unwilling to make any concessions. They're unwilling to accept any type of political system that is that that is inclusive. So the, so now they're fighting with the report that you just mentioned, with Dostum and and Adam Mohammed Noor, who was who was the the the, the warlord running um, Balkh province and and uh, Bazar Sharif. The only guys missing now are Ishmael Khan and, of course, Governor Brahawi out there in in, uh, in the southwestern part of the uh, of the country. You've seen you're seeing a united force now coming up against the Taliban. That's interesting. Also interesting from the national level was uh, 20 SAS soldiers were picked up out of a secret desert airstrip in Kandahar after they evaded and evaded their way there from Kandahar City, where they were when the city fell. What they were doing in Kandahar, I don't have any idea. That's a fascinating tidbit. And we move on now into Greater Kabul. Can you, can, you, can you tell everybody what SAS is, for those that don't know? Well, I'm sorry. SAS is the British Special Air Service. In, in fact, our Delta Force and all of our all of our special ops uh, uh, units model themselves after, after the SAS. They're, they were the, the, the first guys to do this. They're incredibly proficient. And uh, you literally never hear about them, which is, you know, very British. They like that. But um, that, that, that there were that many in Kandahar is curious. I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't think the Brits had any combat forces in Afghanistan at all before this happened. But who knows? So, so that's, that's fascinating. There, there's some stuff happening in this, in this huge picture that we know nothing about. But the, the little bit of facts we're able to pick out of the press or whatnot uh, indicate that there's a huge detailed story here that we're not seeing. But we will eventually. So moving into Kabul, um, it is 76 degrees at 6.34 in the evening, 18.34 for you military types. High today was 82, low was 69. Um, tomorrow will be particularly pleasant with uh, sunshine, 77 the high, 67 the low, and the rest of the week is pretty much irrelevant for our purposes today. Now, uh, this drone strike that was launched on suicide bombers near Sunday, Apparently hit a house with five civilians in it. There's lots of footage of that on the on the on the various social medias. 
The Pentagon's initial response was it's not aware of civilian deaths, so who knows? That's a very typical uh, for claims. That's a perennial problem, the hitting of civilians. Often it's not true. Often it is true. It's, it's, I'll talk about that later if we get into that. The, um, the, the uh, administration now has, of course, ruled out the diplomatic presence, as, as, you've, uh, as you've mentioned. They also said they have mechanisms to help facilitate the ongoing departure of people from Afghanistan if they choose to leave. I don't know what those mechanisms are, but that is positive news, if, if in fact true. The, uh, one of the other disturbing things that came up was uh, <laughs> Nawazuddin Haqqani, probably of, of, uh, not of the Haqqani clan, famous Haqqani clan, but he's got a, a, a special intelligence unit. That's what he heads, the Al-Isha unit, and they're using the handmade military scanners and the biometric databases, which apparently have fallen into their hands, in order to start looking for, in their words, NATO allies or anybody who worked with Indian intelligence. I, I think the Indian intelligence would be a more uh, probably what they're what they're looking at to do. Moving, um, moving. Oh, I'm sorry. Include. I'm staying on the general situation. The uh, we've got we've got we've got tweets from Jack. Uh, uh, we've got a lot of tweets about uh, um, about the uh, providing da- target data for the Kabul strike today from politicians. I think that's all crap. You know. But we do have a report of a hasty arranged in-person meeting with senior U.S. military leaders in Doha that would include the CENTCOM commander with Ghani Baradar. And reportedly, reportedly, Baradar was asking them to come in and take over Kabul or he's going to have to do it because things were moving too fast for his guys to control. This is the report that's in the media. Again, we have no way of knowing uh, the accuracy of, of, uh, of these reports. No way. But if if... If true, um, a rather disturbing, dis- disturbing miss. Okay, moving on to moving on to Kabul International Airport. Um, from a DoD source that was inside the airport, sent to me at yesterday afternoon. Quote: Southgate will be the point of, for all remaining American citizens at the airport by arrangements only. Last American citizen departure via C-17 is 23 hours out from now which is 30 August at 1700 Zulu, which means the last planes are leaving as we record the... Oh, I poked that. <laughs> I mean, I, I added that. that. That means it's leaving right about now because, I, um, cause, you know, Zulu time, we're, we're what? We're eleven and a half ahead. It's the evening now. So according to this, the last planes are on their way now yeah, as Zulu, we're talking. Zulu for me in California, I think it's plus eight, is plus eight. It gets, gets mm-hmm. you Zulu time, I think. And then from there, it's plus three and a half. So, right, correct. Three right. And a half. so if they say 17, it'd be 2030 uh, local Afghan time. And so there's what a couple hours left as we record yeah. this um, yep. before the last, at least according to this, before the last evacuation flight would be out. Right. OK. Con- continuing on with the news facing Taliban pressure, Uzbekistan has has uh, asked all the Afghan Air Force pilots and their planes be uh um, they're going to expel them from their country. They're working with the United States to find some place to put them. They're not going to allow them to remain. Apparently, a considerable number of, uh, of amount of the Afghan Air Force is now sitting in Tashkent in Uzbekistan. I don't know if Uzbekistan are going to let them take the planes with them. Who knows? On, um, I've got another uh, blue check Twitter report from a from a woman 
who, uh, with contacts in Kabul, who says hundreds of Afghan students and alumni of American University in Kabul told evacuations are canceled after seven hours waiting in buses today to get to the airport. They are in panic and say their names and passport information was shared with the Taliban. That's probably where these other tweets were coming from talking about that. Um, Afghan students and alumni of American University don't mean American citizens necessarily. There certainly are American citizens in the faculty, but I'm pretty sure they were long gone. But we don't know. This is another one of the things we don't know. And then the final thing that we of, of things we don't know is a report from a, a, a former interpreter um, to his to, to it, it was a guy who was working for Jeff Kenny's equivalent in Farah province, an army, uh, an army uh, colonel. And uh, this kid was on one of the last flights. He says out of 376, only 70 had paperwork, SIV or P2 visas. I don't understand that. I'm. I question that as being valid this late in the in the evacuation. But again, these are the reports we're getting from eyewitnesses on the ground. And uh, so having having reported that and, and again, noting that that's very difficult to believe, um, I pass it on to you. Got it. All right. Just real quick. Outside of Afghanistan, uh, that pipeline is running relatively smoothly. And, and you continue to see reports of Afghan refugees uh, arriving. I got an email from somebody saying yesterday that they're 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 I think going to use Camp Upshur uh, uh, for <laughs> Afghans, and that there was a, there was a huge drive among Marines and and people in the area to uh, to bring everything that they might need, and they said it was pretty inspiring to uh, to show up to drop your stuff off and see so many people there that they were responding to that. So, uh, CENTCOM, uh, the extraction of U.S. forces again, it is. Uh, by the time this thing plays, it will be uh, after 1900, um, not 1930, uh, local time in Kabul, hours left on the 30th, which gets you to the, the magic day of 31 August. So the uh, the last hours of, uh, of this evacuation, uh, the scene operationally around Kabul International Airport is all allies have departed. Uh, civilian evacuations will end within the next couple of hours. And that by every indication, the United States continues to be on track to depart between uh, by 31 August. And the major uh, events you're seeing seem to be these kind of last gasp, Katusha rockets, um, suicide bombs that are that are trying to be played by ISIS uh, with the United States pairing those things. And Richard Engel talked about right in this in this drama um that 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 goes on so uh with that said uh thoughts jeff will yeah i think the uh these drone strikes against uh you know the uh supposed targets in there they're just they're just posturing by an impotent um you know force that's uh at at its highest levels just trying to save face after that disastrous uh casualty producing event from a couple days ago that killed 13 of our guys so i don't think it mean and it's, it's entirely possible just like tim said they could have hit innocence it's even more likely though that the uh, people who are in there are just lying because they lied a lot too the uh richard Engel hey, reports. hey, hey, hey just, jeff let me, let me just say something about that you know it's it's surprising you you know yeah. a, a staunch american right and and again I don't know how many drone strikes that I facilitated, but I will tell you this. I, I can say, sitting here today and talking with you guys, 
Um, I don't recall us ever, ever um, killing civilians. Because let me tell you, you know, now let me tell you, if somebody's being shot at from a building and you have to save their lives, you have the inherent right to defend them in, in a combat zone. And, uh, and it's your responsibility to do that. And I, as I sit here, that might have been the only time when uh, in, in Afghanistan, uh, Taliban fighters would run into a building. They would be shooting and Marines would be having been wounded and in and, and danger of being killed that you would defend them. But that was extremely rare. Because when you're, you're watching this on a drone feed, right, along with the, the drone guys are fl- that are flying the drone, and if it's in a crowded neighborhood, uh, I mean, you don't shoot them. You're going to get a shot at them. And I don't know, maybe it just comes with more experience, is, is that patience to know that, look, you know, you're going to get, a, you're gonna get a, a, a better shot at them. Um, and so, again, with General Mattis's, you know, um, Iraq admonition, first do no harm. And so, um, again, uh, oftentimes when, when we shoot, people come trying to get money and we'll say we killed somebody. And that turns out to not be true. But, it, you know, just as often as, yeah. Je- as Jeff said, we actually do kill people. And for me, yeah, it's is- such a head scratcher because if you're patient, and again, I know this is, I don't know shit about the shot. I don't know shit about the geometry. I just know shit about all the times that I was involved in it. And you got to be patient so you don't kill. And then ultimately, if you're forced into a situation where you have to take a shot, then so be it. But it doesn't seem like the footage I've seen and where this was pinpointed in Kabul, you know, this is transiting a neighborhood. That's exactly right. Can I talk about the neighborhood? Sure. Well, wait a minute. Well, I interrupted Jeff, so let Jeff talk first, and then you can help him. That drone is coming from the Gulf Gulf State somewhere. It's not coming from nearby. I don't know if that matters, but it's like four or five-hour trip to get there. You know, it's a drone still, but um, yeah. That, but then, where, where, but where it come to, where like, it comes from is irrelevant because those things stay. In, you know, they stay in the air forever now. Yeah, right? but I think because of the, uh, it's just, I just don't, I don't trust the Taliban spokesman. Right. But I don't trust our guys any more than that, really that much more than I do them. Right. The guys who are spokesmen for CENTCOM or for the president. Sorry, I just don't believe our guys. And the reason is because we caught them lying about so much shit for you know recently, so uh, I don't know what else to say. All right, Timmy. Uh, the the Karkana area of Kabul was one of the places that was not touched during the war because they because uh, Hekmadir couldn't get his rockets up there. It's in the northwest part of the city. It's built up. It's a it's a neighborhood of gigantic shopping malls and wedding palaces, and all, it's very nice, very modern. You would look at it and you'd be shocked to see that, that it's that it's in Kabul. And so they're launching those rockets from probably the densest populated area of people that don't like them, which is exactly what I would do. That's exactly what you. I mean, that's that's just competency, tactical competence. That's that's good. Go ahead and shoot back at us. You're just gonna wipe out Afghans, and we don't give a shit about. It. So that that was the dilemma of that particular attack. Yeah, and then the Richard Engel thing. You know, Richard Engel about one tenth of what he says is based on fact. He's sure. just he's got the guts to be in there reporting facts. But the other ninety percent of it is conjecture based on a progressive outlook. On, on uh, you know philosophy of life, 
So all the stuff that he says about, you know, the Taliban, if we're nicer to them, boils down to if we're nice to them, maybe they won't be mean. Well, through the years, that's been uh, that's been debunked. The only thing they understand is meanness, you know. And uh, well, let me, you know, and Jeff, let me ask you about that because they are caught between a humanitarian crisis, a financial crisis, and not having enough ass to militarily rule the nation. And yeah. and and I don't. So it'll be curious to see. I mean, so are you going to overplay your hand again? And then, and I think you can see in the not too distant future, right? Um, yeah. Call it what you want, civil war. Call it Afghanistan returning to its its sectional ruling, right? With a weak with a weak you know federal presence, not even a government, right? Which is historically the way it's existed. Um, so to me, it's 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 got catastrophe written all over it. And the question is, right? right? Constant throughout, constant throughout history is if you have a movement based on an ideology. Um, and you are afraid that if you di- if you compromise at all, you dilute that I- ideology and thus dilute your spiritual strength. And they those guys have screwed up since the the folks who assassinated Julius Caesar, Oliver Cromwell. I mean, uh, on and on, where these ideological fanatics who who are very effective because of their uh, their willingness to die for their beliefs. When it gets to a situation like this, they fail because they ice out most of the population. People are like, you're too crazy. We're not into that much shit, you know? Right. So I think that, I guess that's a, that's, uh, if that's the point, then I kind of agree with Richard Engel. What? I, Hold on. Like say, wait, wait, wait. Say that. What did I, my headset just. That's the underlying point that these guys, you know, there's a, cla- well, and Timmy actually said it more than Engel did. There's a clash between the, uh, you know, the staunch uh, idea, idealists in the, in the Taliban and the more practical guys who are, like, in there now, right. that's going to be a tension. You know, that's a tension. Right. And really, it's the it's the reason ISIS came up out of, uh, you know, out of uh, al-Qaeda and all this stuff, because these ISIS guys, and for that matter, al-Qaeda before them, were a more um, extreme version of extremists already, you know? And, well, uh, you know, I, and I thought Timmy, Timmy um, as I was re-listening to our podcast yesterday, said... Um, called the Taliban as they roll into places like Kandahar and and um, and Herat and J- Jalalabad and and Kabul. Timmy, what'd you call them? Hillbillies? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, they've been raised in madrasas. They're illiterate. They're I mean, the average foot soldier, illiterate, ill numerate, um, and full of superstition as hill pashtuns often are. So they're they're. Yeah, they're a bunch of of of, of uh, illiterate hillbillies. So imagine that. Imagine that comes to your town to rule your town, and then again they they attempt to oppose this, impose this thing on you. And so I, I again, and then with the accompanying financial crisis that's happening, the, the refugee crisis that's going to happen, how does that how does that all hold together? Well, yeah, I mean, I the, I the Soviet answer is right. The Chinese answer is it holds together because of your strong military. Well, what happens if you don't have a strong military, right? What happens if you don't have enough of that? What and, happens if they don't give a shit? Who doesn't? The military. If you're a hillbilly, what do you care if these urban people starve to death or get in a caravan well, and leave? Well, you don't, except you don't have enough ass to impose your will. And so this thing begins to fall apart and people stop, start popping you in the head. And I think at that point, I would care. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple things there. Um, 
just an ops thing. You know, the Iron Dome knocked down these rockets. The Iron Dome Alleg- has allegedly. got to get Allegedly, right? Yeah, and the the Iron Dome has got to get backloaded. So it makes sense that there's going to be significant air over the top of Kabul until the last you know transport takes off. I found the whole Richard Engel piece to be very conventional wisdom, pedantic sort mm-hmm. of crap. Um, right. At the end, right, when the revolution culminates and achieves victory, like we just took Kabul, mm-hmm. there's always friction. Imagine the British press the day after Yorktown. The <laughs> Americans face uh, un- unknown future. Will the revolutionists of the Samuel Adams clique be able to maintain their ideological purity? Or will the pragmatists of the John Adams clique? I mean, this is this is going to feed the, the Afghan you know, focused, immersed press uh, for a while because they got nothing else to think about. And, you know, when Khomeini took over, oh, how are they going to be able to maintain this? Well, they seem to have hung on for, I don't know, 40-odd <laughs> years. But, the, but the, there's a war before we got there in 2001, and now there's the same war afterwards. So it's a little yeah. bit different. You know, a little bit it, different. It, there is different. And they had the and they had the IRGC to enforce, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were and they were formidable and powerful in the nation. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking by the fact that we didn't solve Afghanistan, and so now we're looking and say, well, they'll never be able to solve it either. I just see a certain amount of that going on, and in the end, I'm not sure how much. A whole lot of people in in the Taliban give a shit. But they can control the area they're standing on. That's what they care about. I got a feeling if these, you know, urban non-believers start to starve to death, I'm just not sure how much the Taliban cares about them. And I'm not sure how much anybody else can do anything. Well, if these guys in the north can secure themselves, eventually there'll be some sort of standoff. And if everyone else needs to get the hell out of the country, I'm not sure they're going to care. Well, what we're good at, what we're good at against the, the Soviets is supplying the uh, resistance. And so if there is resistance, and apparently there appears to be one out there in Panjshir province and Bogolan, some other places, well, that's where we can, because that's a light hand, you know, that's, uh, that is backing up motivated people. That's where we were when we worked with the Northern Alliance. And that's where we can be again. And that is effective. And then we're not losing Americans. And we're not, all we're doing is putting, well, is putting money based on good judgment. Now, I don't know how much, how good the judgment is of people who are running things up at the top of the United States are now. But I know that, uh, you know, with, with a little bit of funds, a little bit of, you know, uh, of red eyes and then later on stingers and stuff, we really put a hurting on the uh, occupation there yeah. uh, to help them do that. We could do that again with the with but to uh, what end? A const, We become. I mean, I think we're going to talk about it later. But uh, India and Pakistan looked at the whole thing in Afghanistan basically as a proxy war between the two of them. And uh, what happens is it's like a continuation of the great game in the 19th century between the Brits and the Russians. But what it becomes is we become the guys who are. We got something now to uh, 
to, you know, to gain by feeding constant war in Afghanistan. But we're going to be feeding the side that's, you know, more or less for us. And that's going to be guys like this, uh, you know, the son of Masood. To what end? To what end? It's constant chaos. It's never dominated by any one, uh, by any one force. There's no peace. Who gives a shit? But it, it benefits us to have them so distracted with trying to murder each other that we're not having groups go in there to plan attacks on us. That plus, would be the end. Plus, I fucking hate them. So I want them to suffer misery, those Taliban guys. Yeah. And so, I, I, and I don't want if, our guys to suffer any. I'm sorry. If, go ahead. If we sense that there is going to be this safe haven for terrorists, I agree with you. Yeah. But I'm still hearing that there's going to be constant chaos as it is. ISIS versus Taliban versus Al-Qaeda versus whatever the new Northern Alliance is versus the Indians. So, yeah, I don't disagree. If we think that is the end, then it's worth investing in. Mm -hmm. To defeat the Taliban is irrelevant at this point. Though. Yeah, they defeat themselves. The um. Let's talk about uh, India here. Um, Jeff, explain. You were just alluding to the the this proxy contest between India and Pakistan. Explain their their separate interests in Afghanistan. Why is Afghanistan important to uh, to either one of them? Right. Okay. First thing about India and Pakistan. Up until 1947, they're all one big country known as India, that had been dominated by the Brits for a couple hundred years. The big thing that re led to the reason why there's different separate countries, there's Pakistan and East Pakistan, which was the same nation separated by the mass of the, of, uh, the land mass of India, which now East Pakistan is Bangladesh. But the main difference was Pakistan is dominated by Muslims. India is dominated by Hindus. They, because of those, that religious difference, there is uh, probably the most virulent type of uh, hatred in the world today, in the world today. They saw Afghanistan as a um, as a struggle, like a ground, like a no man's land to struggle between religions. Now, there's no Hindus in uh, in Afghanistan, but they're secular enough. There's and what they what the North Alliance was, was willing enough to take help from India. And after we toppled the Taliban in 2001, 2002, the Indians came back in in a big way to help the Afghans resist the, ta the Taliban, you know, insurgents. And the Taliban is really nothing more, like Tim pointed out a couple weeks ago, as an as a invention of, of uh, you know, a, a virulent faction within the ISI, the Intelligence Service of Pakistan. So it's a constant struggle that, that goes on there now between these two nations. They see everything that happens in Afghanistan as a, as a, um, a chess match between the two of them. And, and sometimes the Pakistanis appear to be, in the past, they appear to be losing, like in the late 2000s. And, and what happens then? There's a massive terror attack engineered by the Pakistanis on Mumbai, what we used to call Bombay that kills like over almost 200 people. And it's all suicide vests and people with AK-47s shooting up hotels and shit like that. And, uh, and, and they've that was just the worst of them. There's a constant stream of that stuff going into, uh, you know, into uh, India from Pakistan. Not a constant, but a steady stream. And then the other thing is, the other exacerbated this is 
there's more Muslims living in India proper than there is any other place on earth. So it's a mess. And it's so just, what is what is India's what was India's interest in Afghanistan to de- to keep it in order to, to destabilize? Right. Yes, to keep Pakistan with a bite, with a out of focus, you know, with not right. one singular focus. Right. And so now they have really been set back right. because Pakistan now is basically the victor in all this. Pakistan's been our enemy since nine eleven. Right. Right. Why we didn't, uh, you know, same thing with huge parts, you know, huge parts of the government in Saudi Arabia. They knew this thing was coming. They approved it. And in some cases, they facilitated it. And we just fucking ignored that. I don't know. And pretended that like people like Saddam Hussein were part of 9-11. When really, the real bastards who did this never got touched. Matter of fact, they got enriched. I mean, for Christ's sake, Ob- Osama bin Laden, is, he's in the retirement community for Pakistani army officers. It's like it was this. He was living. Up are there you telling me that? Are you telling? Are you telling me that that's not a coincidence? No, it is not a coincidence. They oh, knew it. Oh my! They probably, they probably had tea together and shit like that. Where's Osama? <laughs> well, he's got like two forty-five caliber holes in his head right now. They caught him jerking off watching porn. Yeah, uh, you know the the headline is a bit overdramatic. This is not a body blow for India. A body blow for India is a nuclear weapon going off in Bombay. Afghanistan is a nice-to-have for India. It's not a must-have. Afghanistan is a must-have for Pakistan, right? Absolutely. If, if, if India has got significant influence uh, and is able to operate from Afghanistan, then Pakistan's got people on both sides of it. So this is not a body blow. It's it's unfortunate in the great chess match of India. Um, it was an opportunity that they weren't able to fully exploit. But it's not a body blow. Well, I'll t- I think well, I think it's. They may feel like it is. They may feel. Like well, t- to me, to me, the body blow is to American prestige, and and we're seeking India's cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, right? The 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 events in Afghanistan help promote closer military diplomatic right relationships between us and India and India has always kept us at arm's length right and so to me it's another facet of the setback of the american setback there because india right in in this great power competition right is an important part of it so i think that's an element of this that we have we take steps backwards you know with india and the way india looks at us as a partner and I would say that's that's an element of it too. This thing with my experience in Afghanistan with the Indian government was their attempts to help out were almost all, were all above board. They they were the ones that paved the highway from Zaranj from the border in Zaranj up to the ring road as part of a plan to bring in uh, goods overseas from Iranian ports. They constantly offered to train Afghan, various Afghan uh, uh, army units and air force units were constantly rebuffed and, and not asked to help. So, so their, their involvement in Afghanistan was mostly business and financial. There, there is, and, and Afghanistan is such a weird place in Jalalabad, there were Hindus, there were Jews there, there were Christians there, old school type from way back when that families had been in Jalalabad for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was once a tolerant place for various religious <laughs> Not even close. So that was my only observation to make a, a, about the Indians. The Taliban had ISI officers or, quote, 
retired military officers who were volunteering with the Taliban in the field this entire time. Those those T-55 tanks the Taliban are running around Kandahar, those are maintenance by Pakistan. So, hey, you want to hear a story about that, Timmy? Sure. Real quick, Mac. So when we were doing the election up there in uh, Bargamatal, way up there in northern Naristan, um, they surrounded it, and it was like contested gunfights and shit. It was hard to get the ballots in there. So we heard from the head of the border police, who was a Nuristani up there, which is, uh, you know, one of the ethnic groups in uh, in Afghanistan, very staunch Muslims, and he said they captured a uh, a uh, a Taliban guy, and he said that when just over the border there from uh, Barjumatal, just a little bit to the east, is the border with Pakistan, and uh, he said, and these were his exact words, the ETTs are the Taliban. The e- that's what our name was for the Afghan army. We were ETTs, which meant embedded uh, transition training teams. And uh, he said their ETTs said, we will leave here because this is not jihad. In other words, they weren't going to fucking shed blood fighting for Bargamatal anymore. And they had shed considerable amount because they, you know, they didn't consider this to be part of the war against the infidel. They consider this to be an election bullshit thing. And also, it, uh, it also combined with the, the smuggling of diamonds from up there, that was diamonds and other precious stones from that part of Afghanistan. So, but the, what, uh, what impressed me and which kind of all of us dropped our draw, jaws was the, they basically said their advisors told them they're not doing this. They're ETTs. And they use our phrase for it, you know? I'm just saying, so I'm just kind of reinforcing what Timmy was saying about that. Got it. I, I've got twenty years. I've got two uh, two questions. One of the things you see in the news is this: uh, the constant reference to the amount of American equipment that has fallen into the hands of the Taliban. Um, most of it won't be able to be maintained, and I, I think will be inoperable. Anything that any rolling stock will be inoperable in in relatively a short period of time. Uh, thoughts on that? I agree, and I think we should uh, we should a good mission for our special ops guys, or or you know, would be to destroy that equipment that t- Timmy referenced in Uzbekistan. The uh, the the ISAF was, or I guess it was CENTCOM when it got turned over. They cleared out a considerable portion in Bagram Airface of of mines. I, I was talking to to the skipper, old Ralph Ward, because he did it. This was back in 2016. And they moved on. They would move 200 MRAPs at a time in there and go after them with blowtorches and take them apart. So they were demobilizing or demilitarizing, um, destroying equipment at a steady, at, at some kind of pace since uh, 2017, 2018. And there's still all that equipment left in there. I, I, uh, I, I think it just adds, again, to our humiliation and I question again the the giving up of Bagram before we had decommissioned all that. Yeah, that's. But, but again, I don't want to go there. But do you think? I, I mean, our yeah. rolling stock will be. Do you disagree that it'll be largely, you know, be used Dude, I, be used I, I as swung, bridging material again uh, in in the next six months? I think a lot of it will be bridging material. But I flew in a hind helicopter that had that they had jerry rigged some weird American engine into. Those yeah. sons, they can fix right. shit. 
But but again, Timmy, you're talking about nuanced small numbers boutique right. stuff numbers. where somebody has a gifted mechanic and they can make it work and they'll cannibalize other stuff. But that's going to be in relatively small numbers for anything that anything that moved either in the air or on the ground. We hope. We hope. Well, I, uh, I, I, Remember I was talking about the hundreds of, of Ford pickup trucks that were stacked out there in Nimrods because they broke. They don't they don't have the uh, computers to do it. Right. I'm willing to bet you that once once they gave up custody of these things and said, here they are, I bet you the Afghans figured out how to make them run. So there'll be a lot of pickups and that kind of shit. The sophisticated rolling stock, of course not. But what do you when you say sophisticated rolling stock, what are we talking about? Uh, I'm talking about like uh, like you had those thermal imagers inside the MRAPs, that kind of crap, you know? MRAPs and MATVs. I haven't really seen all I've the only place I've seen MRAPs is uh, within the uh, within the environs there, the airport on the runway. That's but true. I've seen outside. I've seen a lot of 1114s. Basically, the Sherman, the Sherman tank of the uh, war in Iraq, which is a, uh, which is a Humvee, which is yeah, Jeff's talking about a Humvee. Right. They're not interested in MRAPs, right? No, they're, still, they're sucking. They're not good in Afghan roads. They're kind of city. They're not very useful. And but the air, it, they got good helicopters, those attack helicopters that they got. And even the Humvee is a bizarro type of vehicle for the environment they're in. A pickup truck is much more useful based on the threat count, I think. So yeah. is this stuff, I mean, a Humvee is not a particularly sophisticated vehicle no no they got good diesel mechanics no but the ecms and shit like that if they didn't get that stuff out of there you know yeah yeah and that stuff it's uh, and now the last couple years they you don't even have a guy in the turret everything the crane system controls the uh crew serve weapon from the inside that's the type of shit yeah but that's uh, that's on the most that's on the most advanced versions of it right and and not sure how much of that got left to them and then if if you can't maintain it Right then, then then you're kind of screwed. Yeah. Let me let me ask you. Let's talk about the next 24 hours. Um, thoughts on the next 24 hours? We talked about yesterday. Heavy air presence as you transition and and, and get uh, the last uh, uh, flights. Evidently, according to the reporting that we have, uh, will you know will depart with anybody who's being evacuated in the next couple of hours. Uh, after that, you're talking about the drawdown of the final security elements. Uh, and we would anticipate heavy air presence, QRF in the air, right? Um, those those aircraft being tanked, um, and because they're going to be up there for a while, and uh, and shows of force uh, around to make sure everybody knows that we're that they and that they actually hear those fixed wing aircraft and things like that. Um, uh, other other thoughts on the on the final twenty four hours of this thing. Well, if you read about frequent wind, even though we had that fleet out Ex- there, explain right? frequent wind there. Frequent wind is the name of the operation that was the evacuation of South Vietnam in uh, April of 1975, and so they had an airborne command and control C-130 up constantly, and they had a fighter air cap just like we have here that basically is overhead to uh, you know provide you know uh, kinetic assistance if necessary, and then you had people controlling. Um, the helicopters and C-130s as as appropriate. Because as the av- evacuation went on in frequent wind, 
Um, they lost control of Tonson Air Base, which meant no more fixed wing for the last 24 hours or so of the evacuation. And hence the uh, pictures of people getting pulled off the roof of the embassy in Saigon by 46s and so forth. But they had tremendous amount of uh, as much as you could have then uh, in 1975. They had it up for that. And so I think there'll be even more of that and much more, uh, you know, capable now uh, over the skies of uh, Kabul during this thing. And I also my prediction is they'll be out. Everybody will be out of there before the 31st. Well, they've only got about four hours in, right? Well, that's right, because of the time difference and stuff. But uh, I mean, before like they I would would caveat what you say said and i would say before the sun comes up on the 31st the lost americans will be out of kabul international airport right oh, yeah i say that's a pretty good bet got it all right will tim i i second jeff's uh uh point about being out of early i think they're winding this thing down i certainly hope it sounds like the thunderdome inside that bowl of kabul with the aircraft i think that would be quite an impressive display and uh, something that will be caught uh, from multiple perspectives on YouTube, and we'll see it. So this will be an evacuation that will happen, you know, in the middle of the middle of the night. Yet, yet by the morning, we'll probably start seeing live tape of it, it's, or or recorded tape of it. So that will be interesting. The big story is going to be how many we left behind. I think the second big story is going to be why the con- why the continued confusion on the evacuation site. If there was that much confusion, we don't know. We're just getting reports from frustrated Afghans, and I got to stress that. But uh, um, I think that's 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 where this is going to turn to. There's an awful lot of American citizens that are that are in Kabul, and um, you know it's. I mean, excuse me, I'm sorry, in Afghanistan, and I don't for a second believe that 300. Uh, there's only 300 left number. They don't have any idea how many Americans are in there any more than I do, and I guarantee you it's more than 300. That's bullshit. And and with that rather harsh remark, expressing my frustration, I turn it over to Will. Yeah, you know, the the stories about people being um, sort of told to get ready to go and then not getting ready to go. It, you know, at one point, I think in General McKenzie's press conference last week, they talked about 5,000 people inside the wire that they're loading into cereals to, to put on airplanes. So we don't know how many were are actually inside the airport today as the final cereals that go off. I think there's been a little chatter in the press about uh, the State Department um, pushing hard to not have sort of rogue mercenary airplanes come in to take people out. And uh uh, if if the airport is as busy as we think that it is, and the fact that they're trying to make sure we police up the last bit of equipment that we want to take, that they got accountability on all the people, the last thing they need to do is interrupt the airflow uh, with sort of rogue flights, some of which are intention getting, some of them which are very heartfelt that we got to get these last people out. Um, so... The, there's going to be bad press no matter what at the end of this thing because uh, you're going to find people that got left behind and they're going to be on video and there's going to be tragedy. Uh, you can bet on it. And uh, so we'll see what knocks us off the front page sometime in the next two weeks. Um, yeah. You know, if I was a bet man, I don't know about when the last flight's going to be, blah, 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 blah. 
But the over-under on Afghanistan being a big story is like uh, five days. All right, I'm going to write that down. Because you are a betting man, and uh, and uh, that wouldn't be the first time you'd be wrong on this podcast, just for the record. Five days. I second that emotion. I put the over-under. <laughs> Five days. Uh, I, I think he's right on the over/under. That's a that's an indictment on us. Five Nobody's going to want to be talking about this. You guys don't remember good. Scott Sobka, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, Scott, um, for those in the audience, was an instructor at the infantry officer course, and his company commander, or he had a fr- he put together a neo, um, like a, a neo symposium or, uh, where he had speakers come in, because I took neo, I think, from him. At, at the infantry officer course, but before I was there, I was working for Will as a weapons platoon commander uh, for EI company. But he had uh, he had the company commander of the Delta One Four, the guys who actually retook the Mayaguez. He had uh, oh, I remember had, this. He had Captain Rogers, who was the CEO of the company in Two Four that we relieved in Liberia in August of uh, 1990. But he brought back the XO of the basic school, who was a helicopter pilot. He was the XO for Colonel Ebert. Um, and he was uh, he was the guy who used to say, you can never be too thin uh, or have too many medals. Remember that guy? He was a, he was a 46 pilot who flew a shitload of mi- he, he flew a shitload of missions in, in uh, to Saigon, pulling people out of the stuff. But it was very informative. Everything we're talking about now, I mean, it's different neos, right? It was like some uh, of them were amphibious, some of them were by air. Uh, they all had, uh, you know, some of them actually involved fighting. Right. Like the captain, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was a colonel then. By 1992, he was a colonel. They all lived over there by the pool on Mainside, you know, and uh, he had him. Uh, he had him come over, but uh, yeah, I'll never forget that guy. You can never be too thin, have too much hair. <laughs> Or have too many medals. Remember him? <laughs> I didn't yeah. remember that line. Let me tell you, that's the Marine Corps that we grew up in, right? And you want to be yeah. a success in the Marine Corps? Find out what your CO wants, give it to him. That was, yeah. that was career advice. It all, boy, there you go. Everything you needed to know in 1990 about how to have a successful career. And, uh, <laughs> and the, um, well, that's funny. But no, hey, Scott Sauber, great guy. He was solid yeah. citizen for Max. Yeah, from New Jersey. He's rich somewhere now. Yeah, no, he's doing good. He was working for Frito Lay, I think, still. Uh, went to work for them in the operations side and has done great stuff. Uh, uh, still living in New Jersey. Uh, got a kid who's uh, who's in the Navy. And uh, no, Scott Sopka, good guy. Um, yeah, he's he was one of those. Uh, Scott, he's just this big dude, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and let me tell you. Um, his nickname was Yaki. Some stupid because, yeah, yeah we had for Yaki we- Yaki Soba, which is a really yeah. shitty nickname. I don't know who gave that well, to him, that's but how it- that came about Yaki yeah. Soba because everybody went to Okinawa and got yeah yeah. But Scott was one of those people who loves right. He loved to fight. Yeah, he loved to wrestle, and he, and he was kind of a quiet. He's a little bit of a quiet guy, but his eyes would glimmer like at the room of pain and right and and and, and shit like that and oh, he's yeah. funny funny guy no one who worked at ioc whose name was scott was allowed to be called scott yeah. we called him yaki 
but we called um herbivore uh, yeah, uh, yeah herb we called it no we, we, we called him herb because he was herb. that or general kennedy named him that because he was for a while he was a vegetarian so we call him herbivore or her i thought for a year his, his name was herbert man no, herb. <laughs> No. <laughs> and the, Tim would call him from one of the phones and pretend to be a guy ordering pizza. He was such a nice guy. He'd go, "Well, sir, this is not really." Oh, he, you could stretch that on for twenty-five minutes. It was just. Oh no, he's still the he's still Scott Control is still the nice guy. He's the first person I ever heard of ordering a vegetarian Whopper. <laughs> like, what is that? Like, is there such a thing? The um. The last thing I you know I want to talk about you know much especially among Marines much in in conversation. The last, I don't know, three days or so has been um, a video that got posted by an active duty a lieutenant colonel uh, by the name of Stuart Schiller. And um, uh, he posted a video, and I think, uh, and, and, and it went viral, and it got much, much uh, attention because the sentiment that he expressed is one that we've talked about on this program for years, and that is the accountability of the general officers and the flag officers of the American military um, who have essentially reenacted Vietnam, except they don't have an excuse because they studied Vietnam. And so that sentiment we've discussed as, as a problem, I would say the number one problem inside the Department of Defense. This, sh- this, c- this should never, ever, you know, be allowed to happen. So uh, Lieutenant Colonel Schiller in uniform, while on active duty, you know, uh, made his statements. And then, um, and, and we talked about it yesterday, uh, we all understand that, that that he can't do that, right? There's no excuse for it. Um, but if, if he wants to take that kind of position, that's certainly, you know, um, his right. And we talked yesterday, was there any doubt in anybody's mind that he would be disciplined, court-martialed or whatever, and, and it was unanimous? No. Um, he published a second video, and I'll just say this, and this comes from my background doing post-traumatic winning. You know, um, I hope he's okay, right? Because some of the things that you see in there give you indications of um, how much this has bothered him. And so I just, uh, I don't want to comment anymore, and I'll give these guys a chance to, to, to make their comments, but I don't want to comment anymore about that. I think the issue that he spoke of is a separate and very, very important issue. I think his well-being is, uh, I think, is uh, ought to be a concern because obviously um, you can see how heartfelt what he posted initially was. I would, I would imagine that the outpouring of that, uh, outpouring of everything that hit him, uh, hit him like a ton, and uh, and then a subsequent video um, is. I don't even want to get into it, uh, but. Um, but again, uh, I hope that he's okay and I hope that the appropriate people are checking on him this morning. And so, uh, I'll give you guys the floor in terms of thoughts about that. When I first saw that video, the first one, what, what you hope is, is he prepared this thing. He launched it. It was part of a plan. He knows he's going to be relieved when he launches it. That's not a mystery. It was part of a plan. And I was hoping the guy had maybe had other means and was thinking about a political career or something like that. Cause that would have been an excellent stepping off point. The second video, uh, is, is way too alarming. Um, it, it certainly puts any career aspirations he had in jeopardy. 
at that, but that's the least of the problems. The, the problem is, is he sounds like uh, that he needs he needs to talk to some people like Mac. Straight up, he's hurting. Yeah, I kind of thought. Um, I, I thought the first one was was uh, was uh, I kind of admi- admired him for the first one because and even though it was like when he gave it, what made it more convincing to me is a little bit halting, a little bit awkward. Um, just like anybody, you know, who would do something like that, any of us, I think, you know, who would make that decision. Um, and I, I thought it was a powerful message. And, and again, we, we couldn't, he had to be, you know, had to be addressed. He had to be relieved. Really. You can't, we can't do that, but he had good reason. And uh, I thought it was, you know, an admirable thing, all, you know, all things being equal, but the uh, subsequent stuff he should, after that, he should just shut up because it's like Colonel Hardy used to say, you know, never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. Once you, the more you talk, the less, you know, the more you hurt the impact of the first uh, address, I think. So, you know, I hope, I hope him, I wish him well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to the guy, but uh, well, that's my opinion on it. Yeah. And, and I, I'll tell you, when I saw the first video, I, uh, in contrast to Tim, was hoping he wasn't stepping into some political thing because of the, that to me tarnishes uh, the message of it. Um, I, I'd say, you know, a great lesson to me uh, from my previous life was don't read the comment section. Uh, but I've been reading the comment section and um, the... You know, this is the greatest hero in the history of the United States Marine Corps, according to the comments section. This is the worst traitor uh, since Benedict Arnold, according to the comments section. And, um, you know, when he came out in the second video, he basically announced that he had resigned his commission. Uh, So the conspiracy theories are running wild throughout the comments section. And... All of that takes away from the fundamental issue of where is the accountability of the senior uniforms over the last 20 years. And interesting, Thomas Ricks, who I think is uh, a little schizophrenic, uh, but he wrote a, an article for the uh, for the Atlantic, and he he in some detail goes after, um, you know, Casey Sanchez, uh, et cetera, coming out of Iraq in particular. Uh, and I, I didn't read the whole article. It's pretty long, but I think it's going to go into some of the things in Afghanistan. And that's, that's the debate that should be happening out there. And, um, you know, there's a certain sentiment, well, this guy stood up and he's paying the price. Well, that's part of it as well. That's part of the power of civil disobedience is that I'm willing to stand up and say something that people don't want to hear and suffer the consequences of that. And uh, what he said in the initial one was likely enough uh, for you to lose confidence in his ability 
to execute the task at hand. And, and unfortunately, in the second video, I think he puts himself in significant legal jeopardy because it's too easy to interpret that as communicating a threat. And it's just completely inappropriate when you've stood up and said you support and defend the Constitution. And so uh, I think he's really detracted from the message, which is important, and distracted everyone to now it's unfortunately going to be about him and not about the idea. So it's too bad. Got it. All right. On that note, boys, thank you very much for uh, doing this again and and throughout the weekend, your contributions. Um, And uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a great day. All right. Thank you too now. All right. Yeah. Later, guys. That'll do it on this Monday. Uh, Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Keep everybody at that airport uh, in your thoughts and prayers. Uh, The families of 13 Americans and those that were wounded, keep them in your prayers too as they go through uh, an experience that, uh, you know, everybody wishes they did not have to go through. Um, And keep Lieutenant Colonel Schiller in your prayers too. I mean, um, again, just my my experience of doing this for the last five plus years. Um, um, got a lot of on a, a lot of got a lot of shit going on. So uh, hopefully um, he's able to sort that out, and uh, and and g- good things happen for him. Because uh, you can see he's you see, again. I don't know him. He seems to be a sincere guy, but. Tap into things that are bigger than yourself, and sometimes that leads to things you don't really want to happen happening, and then you got to deal with that. So, anyway, uh, so on this Monday, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. I'm out.